Hello, this is Evans Marajas, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. And on this occasion, my guest is my dear friend, David Charles Abel. I've known David for over 35 years, watched him grow in a variety of genres, uh, lived in close proximity to him in London, and happy to have him as a frequent collaborator here at Cincinnati Opera. We're going to be spending time talking about his unusual path to the world of conducting, his rather astonishing conducting debut in not just Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, but something far more ambitious, and how his career has been helped by avoiding some very serious advice he was once given. David, one of the earliest images I have for you is a photograph of you as a kid with Leonard Bernstein. Would you tell us how that photo came about? When I was eight years old, we lived in Philadelphia, and my mother took me to the choir master of the local Episcopal Church and said, here's a boy for your boy's choir. His voice is very deep. I don't think you'll get him to sing treble, but you're welcome to try. And uh, our choir master was a strict disciplinarian, and he did get me singing high, and I loved singing in church. I grew up with the English church music tradition. And later I was chosen to be in a summer national boys' choir called the Berkshire Boy Choir. And that summer happened to be the summer that Bernstein was opening the Kennedy Center with his piece, Mass. The Berkshire Boy Choir was chosen to be the boy choir for Mass. So I went to Washington. I missed the first couple weeks of school, which was very exciting. <laughs> and we uh, tooled around the Kennedy Center, going into all the places that we shouldn't have gone. It had just been built. And we sang in this extraordinary piece of musical theater. And it was at that point that I met Leonard Bernstein and that uh, that picture was taken at the recording session of Mass, which was the following year. And my father was there, and he said, go ask Bernstein for his autograph. I said, I can't, I can't. He said, go. And I did, and Dad got a picture. And do you remember that picture? Oh, yes. I mean, meaning oh, that you, you're, you're conscious of that moment. Because sometimes as we get older, you know, those childhood memories are things that people tell us we had, and we can't for the life of ourselves remember them. But you do. Of course, and Bernstein was the ultimate American musician at that point. And long into my adult life, when I met him later, uh, I was lucky enough to, to go to Yale, and I worked with a conductor called John Marcheri there, who was working with Bernstein at the time. And he reintroduced me to Lenny at that point, and I started working with him and editing his music. And actually, Lenny was responsible for my professional conducting debut in Berlin, conducting Mass. Oh, was, my God. Goodness. I was 23 years old, and there was this company that wanted to do Mass in Berlin. And Lenny said, well, David knows it. Not only was he in the boys' choir originally, but he also was assistant to John in 1981 on the 10th anniversary production of it. So I did know it very well, and, and that was my professional conducting debut. Nothing like starting with a small piece. I mean, Mass has everything but the kitchen sink in it, a rock band and a street choir and a children's chorus and an adult chorus and several soloists and... Well, you were ready for opera right away then. <laughs> I was. I was, but I didn't know it. Actually, my first introduction to opera, <laughs> there were three operas that I was taken to when I was in high school, all by Donizetti. And it wasn't the best introduction for someone who had grown up in the English choral tradition, a very pure tone boy sopranos, because there I was at Chicago Lyric Opera. By this time, we lived in the Chicago suburbs, and they took us downtown. And that house is shaped like a shoebox, and we were way up in the balcony at the back. There were no surtitles at that point. No one had explained the plot of the pieces to us. So the first one that I saw was La Favorita. Oh, my goodness. Terrible introduction. The second one was Lucia, which wasn't much better, even though it's a great piece, I realize now. And the third was L'Elysir d'Amore, which to this day I can't bear. And um, Remind uh, me never to ask you to come in and conduct it. <laughs> well, you might be able to convince me now. but Point uh, taken. <laughs> but um, it put me off opera for several years until I went to Yale and worked with John, who was doing a lot of opera at the New York City Opera, and in very interesting productions by directors like Frank Corsaro, and uh, he was doing The Macropolis Affair, very interesting piece by Janacek, Don Giovanni, um, Boito's Mephistofele, which is amazing for a conductor. And I went and I sat in the pit at City Opera and I thought, oh, I think I've been missing what this is all about. <laughs> and I also made the connection because I learned uh, Italian and German. I already knew French at that point. 
And I began to understand what mm. the stories were about and to understand libretti. And I educated myself and I thought, well, this really isn't very different from the musical theater that I love. It's just musical theater in a different time and a different place. Let's back up because clearly you have music in your life from as long as you can remember, first as a singer, but sooner or later, at some point, the conducting bug, as it were, uh, comes into your life. Some early recollections of either admiring other conductors or saying, hey, I could do that. Well, I, uh, after I started singing, I also took some piano lessons, which I didn't enjoy. But then I took up the trumpet, which I did enjoy very much. Um, it was loud and fun <laughs> to play. But the orchestra at my school needed violas more than trumpets, so they switched me to the viola. Now, those two instruments have absolutely nothing to do with each other, technically. But it turned out that having experience playing a wind instrument and a stringed instrument and singing was very useful for a future conductor. The way my first ever conducting happened was I was playing in the orchestra at my high school. I think it was my sophomore year, so I would have been 14 or 15. So this is New Trier High School in Wilmette, right? New Trier High School, which is a great public high school. We, there were three orchestras at that high school. I played in all three, a symphony orchestra, a chamber orchestra, and a string orchestra. And the symphony orchestra had a concert scheduled at a neighboring school one afternoon. Early that morning, I got a call at home from the head of the music department. Now, the head of the music department Never called my house. So I thought, what is going on here? What trouble am I in? <laughs> yeah, what trouble am I in? Little did I know that he told me that the conductor of the orchestra was sick that day. Now, later on, I learned that sick in this case probably meant overindulging the night before. <laughs> but anyway, he was not well, and he could not conduct the concert. So the head of the music department said, David, do you think you could do it? And I said, absolutely. I had never conducted anything before, except my church choir a couple times. And we were doing, I don't remember the whole concert, but it was at least one movement of Howard Hansen's Second Symphony. Oh, the, maybe the slow one with the famous tune that became the Interlochen theme. Dee, da, I, da, ta, da, dee, dee. Yes, and later I went to Interlochen and played that many times. But <laughs> I, um, we must have started together and ended together and gotten through the concert because no it one seemed got to hurt. be a big success. <laughs> no one died. And I got the bug for conducting. I so was, what would, uh, if you've run into people or if you've talked to your folks in subsequent years, what were you like as a kid? You must have been pretty hyper. <laughs> what do people say about you now that make uh, you cringe a little bit that when you were, who was that David Abel when he was 12 and 13 and 14 years old? Well, my sisters, I have three younger sisters and a younger brother. I'm the oldest. And they always say, oh, it was the best childhood. You made it so much fun. We would make movies with you. You would direct them and you would put us in place. And then we would do magic tricks on film and we would disappear and appear and I would be the witch and I would be the, you know, whatever. So you were a royal pain, really. Oh, yes, very much so. Very much. I was a know-it-all, a smarty pants. And I loved everything about music. Not only did I love classical music, but I also loved pop, which was at a really interesting phase Oh, One yeah. of my first memories of pop music was um, Abbey Road by the Beatles, which yeah. is a masterpiece of an album. Now, do I recall in your various uh, lives since then that you have actually set foot in Abbey Road, the studios? Oh, oh yes, I've recorded there because I live in London now and um, I've made several recordings there. It's a wonderful orchestral studio. And have you walked on that crosswalk? Of course, <laughs> had my picture taken and everything. <laughs> so you're in high school, you're getting the bug for conducting, um, You've sort of jumped on the podium with no real training in the craft of conducting. What convinces you and how do you go about getting the craft? That came later, really. I was still interested in composing in high school, and I wrote uh, songs and orchestral pieces and chamber music. In my senior year, I wrote a musical because this high school, in addition to having three orchestras, produced a student-written musical every year. And I was a composer for that, and the orchestrator, and the conductor of it one year. <laughs> they save so, money that way by having a person do all three, right? <laughs> Indeed. And I made three fees. No, I didn't. There were no fees. But um, I, I loved doing that, so I hadn't really decided which direction I was going to go. When I went to college, I started to focus more on conducting. I was lucky enough to have Rob Capolo, who is a great popularizer of classical music on National Public Radio these days, as my professor of conducting. 
Hmm. And later I met John Marcheri, as I mentioned. He was already working as a professional conductor, and uh, I became his assistant. After I graduated from Yale, I went to the Washington Opera and the New York City Opera, assisting him. That started now, me on my way. When you're studying conducting, you know, the, 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 the thing I hear from young conductors and from some conducting teachers is that any idiot can beat four beats to a bar. What are some of the early things you learned as a conductor about what it really means to practice the craft beyond the simple indication of where you are in the bar, what is the tempo? What are some of the things that maybe from your earliest study of the art and craft of conducting that have stuck with you and that were really important early lessons or early early tips, if not, if not necessarily uh, I th- a lesson? I think really knowing what conducting was came much later. I don't think I was really any good till I was at least 45. And I started in my 20s or even earlier. Um, you know, I, I tell people when they ask whether I could teach them conducting, I say, yeah, I could do that in 10 minutes. That there are patterns that you use. There's an international language. So it means as a conductor, you can go to any country and the orchestra will understand what you mean with your gestures. But that's only the very beginning of what you need to, to do as a conductor. I think in the end, what you have to offer is your personality. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, it's considered that I have very good technique. Uh, everyone says, oh, you're so clear. Your beat is so clear. And I think, well, I'm glad for that, but that isn't really what's important. What's important is for me to communicate how I feel the music. And this is one reason I like doing opera so much, because as an opera conductor, you have to feel the music. I think to be a good opera conductor, you need to be a bit of an actor. You have to understand and feel with the singers on stage what they're feeling in the moment, the emotions of the characters, and communicate that a bit to the orchestra. Uh, You have to be the conduit between the pit and the stage, and the stage and the pit, and of course, both of those things and the audience. So you're like, I mean, conductor is quite a good term in the terms of like an electrical conductor. You know, you, you conduct something through your body and through your personality. I'm getting a bit mystical here. There are lots of technical things that you need to know as a conductor. You need to understand orchestration, and I love orchestration. I'm very interested in it. Um, And part of what I do when I prepare an opera is a bit of editing on the score. So I will mark the bowings for the strings, for instance. Um, Having been a string player, it helps a lot. The bow, of course, goes two directions on the string. It goes down and it goes up. And naturally, when the bow goes down, the volume goes down. So you make a natural diminuendo as you play a down bow. And when you play an up bow, there's a natural crescendo because you're going towards the string. And once you know that fact, and if you've played a stringed instrument, uh, you can get the phrasing that you want from the strings. Fra- by phrasing, I mean where the, phrase, where the musical phrase goes. Quite often, uh, musical phrases have a great arc. And that's what you want. You want... Um, a shape to the music. You don't just want notes. Notes are pretty useless by themselves. You know, why would you just want to hear a series of notes? It's interesting from a mathematical standpoint, but it's not emotional. So to get the emotion, you need to have the technical knowledge as well. So as you study a score, whether it's an orchestral score or a brand new piece of musical theater or a classic opera, beyond understanding up and down, as it were, in the strings and the interesting things that happen within the orchestration, meaning that at this point, ah, yes, I want to make certain that this phrase, the flute, comes out because it's helping the singer find their pitch or that it is uh, in contrast to what the singer is singing. In other words, those nuances. What are some of the, the, the larger arcs of emotion that you're trying to assimilate into your brain as you begin to approach rehearsals and performance? Hmm. Well, when it's opera, you're always thinking of the story. And so when I learn an opera, the first thing I do is read the libretto without looking at the music, because that's what the composer did. Most of the great composers didn't start composing until the libretto was complete. And many of them were extremely dissatisfied with their librettists for a long time. Puccini famously went through librettists, you know, like paper towels. <laughs> and some of his operas have seven Four or eight librettists. Five, yeah. yeah, listed as the And some who are authors. not even credited, exactly. Exactly. Because <laughs> they were so, so bad. <laughs> but the great composers understood that the story had to be in the right shape before they even started to write music. And interestingly, Oscar Hammerstein, 
Um, I do a lot of musical theater as well, and Oscar Hammerstein I consider to be the greatest uh, wordsmith in the American musical theater canon. He and Richard Rodgers, for instance, would spend weeks and even months talking about the story, talking about the characters, and then identifying where in the story required music. So where a character would go from talking, because of course their musicals combine speaking and singing, to go from talking to singing. Why would they go into singing? Why did the emotion get so heightened that they had to go into singing? And I think opera composers do that with arias as well. Mozart must have done that with Da Ponte to decide where the arias would be in Marriage of Figaro, for instance. So I read the libretto, and then I look at the music. I always research sources from the time to try to get the most um, authentic text of the opera because some of them come down to us in corrupted versions, and musicals certainly do. <laughs> And then I will look more specifically at the harmony, the melody, the orchestration, decide where, you know, orchestras need to know what's the melody and what's the accompaniment. It's particularly important in opera. And when you're playing the melody, play louder. And when you're playing the accompaniment, stay in the background because we want to hear the melody. I want to jump back a little bit to Yale because, of course, when well, someone says, well, I went to Yale or you hear about Yale, you think, of course, of... A highly prized academic institution with uh, good sports activities, but I would I would argue that probably your average citizen, if you say Juilliard, people think of of course Juilliard. It's a conservatory, or even some of the universities that have famous schools of music, like Indiana University and the University of Michigan. But Yale would seem to be an unlikely place for such a rigorous and adventuresome music program. Share with us, if you will, a couple of memories from your time at Yale. What made that the musical environment there so vibrant and, and so formative for you? Well, my degree was an academic degree. It was a theoretical. I studied theory and history of music. So performance was something you did on the side. But the great thing about Yale is it has 12 residential colleges, and every undergraduate is a member of one of these colleges and lives there. And each of those has a dining hall. And after dinner, the chairs and tables can be cleared away, and it can be made into a theater or a concert hall. And each of the colleges had a certain budget for the arts. So every weekend, there would be some performance in the dining halls. There were also theaters. There was the Yale Dramat. So there was an incredible amount of music going on. And something about Yale undergraduates, they just loved making music. I conducted operas, musicals, concerts. I had the Bach Society my senior year. And one of my very first concerts there was Wind Ensemble, which I knew nothing about. But it was a revelation because I discovered these great pieces by Vaughan Williams and Percy Granger and Gustav Holst that I didn't know for band. And uh, that was the, the joy, really, of being at Yale. And were you a member of the Whiff and Poofs at any point? I was not. I, I was approached at one point, but I... It wasn't really the direction I wanted to go. They are a great group and still still are to this day. You move on from Yale. Where does your study take you next? I spent two years assisting John at City Opera and Washington Opera. But what I was lacking was time in front of an orchestra. So I thought, how am I going to get to practice my instrument, which is the orchestra? And so I thought, well, I better go to some conservatory. So I applied to Juilliard. <laughs> <laughs> well, might as well start at the top, right? <laughs> and somehow, I don't know, I, I just had a feeling I would get in, and I did. I passed the audition, and I studied with George Mester and Sixten Erling there, who were, well, George was an excellent teacher. Very tough, very tough. I think we spent two months on beating a basic four pattern, which is the most basic thing you can do as a conductor. Why was Mester tough? What, was, what were some of the aspects of... Uh, and, and now, in retrospect, what do you appreciate about his toughness? Um, <laughs> I do appreciate it. It really helped my technique a lot. Um, I thought I knew, you know, I was a typical, arrogant, young conductor. I thought I knew everything. All I wanted to do was get in front of an orchestra. But to be honest, I didn't. And he, I remember one, one time we were doing the Eroica Symphony. And uh, we, had, we had time with an orchestra every week. We had two or three sessions a week, and each of us would get half an hour. And uh, I had been okay at the last session, but not very expressive and not very interesting. And George said, all right, you had better be more expressive next time you get up there. I got up there. I wasn't. And he said, okay, clear away the music stand. 
All right, everybody, talk to the orchestra. David is going to do a dance to the Eroka Symphony now, an interpretive dance. Go. And I thought, okay, I've got to do this. And so I just went crazy. And, you know, I, I, I was still conducting in a way, but it broke me out of my sort of academic um, one, two, three, four, this is the way you play thing. And that's, in a lot of ways, that's really what musicians want. The clarity is great, but they want to be inspired. And this orchestra found my interpretive dance inspiring. Luckily, there's no video of it. <laughs> In the days before cell phones, you have been saved. <laughs> so you have acquired technique. You obviously have acquired a, a mentor in John Marcheri. You're getting opportunities. You get this amazing chance to conduct mass in Berlin, of all places. And do you, as it were, set out upon the public highway right away to become a professional conductor, looking for a position in an orchestra, trying to get up opportunities with opera companies? What's the, what, what is, what's some of the early stopping points along the path for you? Well, my U.S. debut took place because Natalia Makarova was hit with a boom from the flies. The okay. great dancer, Natalia Makarova. Yes, Makarov. the great dancer. I'll explain this. John Macheri, my teacher, was doing two jobs at once, typical of him. He was music director of the Washington Opera, and he was conducting The Turn of the Screw by Benjamin Britten in the Terrace Theater, a small theater at the Kennedy Center. At the same time, a musical that he had produced on Broadway, or co-produced, On Your Toes, was appearing at the other theater in the Kennedy Center. Makarova was the star of that. It was Rogers and Hart's On Your Toes, which John had restored with Hans Bialik, the great orchestrator, um, and produced on Broadway. And they were both performing at the same time. John had an assistant at On Your Toes who would conduct some performances when John needed to be in the other theater conducting Britain. And what happened was there was an accident one night, and McCarva, who was starring in, in this musical, was hit by a, a boom which fell from the flies and I think broke her collarbone. She couldn't perform. So her understudy went on, and John thought, I'd better be there with the understudy going on. She needs me. But there was a matinee of the turn of the screw going on at the same time. I had conducted a lot of the rehearsals, so he said, David's conducting that performance on a few hours' notice. You know. so, so the first two of your first most important engagements are basically thrown into the fire without exactly. much warning. But that's how it happens for young conductors, mm -hmm. usually. Yeah. So, Do you remember anything of that performance that afternoon? <laughs> I, I thought it went well, and everyone else seemed to as well. Worked and, in a daze and, at the end of it. <laughs> and a friend of mine got the Washington Post music critic to come. Oh, I forget his name now, a big heavyset guy. Uh, and he wrote me a really nice review, so right off the bat, I had a great review to add to my portfolio. There comes a point, uh, because I think a lot of people listening to this podcast will recognize your name not necessarily from your work in opera or your work in symphonic, but if they own a certain famous DVD of a certain very famous musical on the occasion of a certain famous anniversary of it, some of your early worldwide recognition came from a long-running musical. Would you share the story of how that all came about? Well, I worked for a couple of years with Giancarlo Menotti, the great opera composer. And one of his main pieces of advice to me was, David, don't ever conduct Broadway. You will never be taken seriously again as a conductor. Never do it. Now, this is coming from a man who had his operas produced on Broadway. <laughs> so there was a bit of hypocrisy there. Yeah. But um, I, uh, I didn't take his advice. And in 1989, I accepted an offer to conduct a national tour of Les Miserables. Now, Les Miserables is pretty much an opera because it, uh, well, at the time, before the cuts were made, the first act lasted an hour and 38 minutes or an hour and 41 on a really slow night, but that was not good. <laughs> and that's, as so we can put it into perspective, that's a full 15 to 20 minutes longer than the first half of Porgy and Bess, which you are conducting for the second time at Cincinnati Opera yeah, this it's, summer. It's as long as some acts of Wagner. Right. <laughs> And there's no dialogue, so it's all conducting. So as a conductor, you have to be a serious conductor to do that piece. The music is not as sophisticated as the opera that we know and love, but it, can, it could be argued that it's an opera. So I thought, well, I'll learn something from this. So I, I went on tour uh, with my husband, Sean Alderking, and he was playing piano and keyboard in the pit 
with me. And we spent, I think I did seven months of that tour, eight performances a week of this massive show, touring around, doing one-week stints in lots of cities around the United States. That provided an opportunity to make a lot of mistakes as a conductor and as a music director, which taught me a great deal. But eventually you were tapped to, to lead a very famous production of it that was recorded for television. Well, yes. Um, Claude Michel Schoenberg liked my work on the show a lot, and he asked me to go first to Montreal to do a bilingual production, which was very interesting. The same cast did five shows a week in French and three in English. Whoa. And sometimes would forget what language they were singing in <laughs> and give a night. From line to line. <laughs> yes. And then uh, we went to Paris and we took Les Miserables to Paris, which was very exciting and extremely difficult because they don't have the traditional musical theater there, but was a big success. And then I did Miss Saigon, which was their next big hit. And um, he also asked me to conduct the 10th anniversary concert version of Les Miserables, which was in the Royal Albert Hall in 1995. And it was just massive event that was recorded for television. And it has been used to raise money on PBS all over the United States for many, many years. The next time I conducted Les Miserables was 15 years later for the 25th anniversary at the O2, which seated even more people than the Albert Hall and was an even starrier cast and even more broadcast over the world. So my 15 minutes of fame were... Well, more like 15 years, really. <laughs> and it's th those, those things are still broadcast from time to time. People write to me and they said, oh, I saw the back of your head on TV again tonight. <laughs> so you made a pretty bold decision because, of course, Manati's uh, advice, as it were, is, is part of a larger kind of advice that I think is being proven wrong more and more these days. But stick to one genre or stick to high art. Don't... Don't cross that line because no one will ever ask you to conduct a Mendelssohn symphony again. But you have negotiated that, that path very successfully on more than one continent and have done you know, thorny modern music with the BBC, core opera, opera repertoire here in Cincinnati, new works, uh, a principal position for several seasons with the Philadelphia Pops. Uh, you, you have no boundaries. <laughs> uh, I think you, you, you reflect the, this comment that was once attributed to Toscanini. There are only two kinds of music, good music and bad music. Well, I believe that. And the, the musicians that I revere were geniuses, musical geniuses like George Gershwin, uh, Mozart, who also thought of their audience and wanted to reach out to their audience in a sort of populist way. Now, pop, that word has bad connotations these days, but in the arts, I think it's important. And... Most of the great composers realized that at some point in their career. I'm thinking of Copland, for instance, Aaron Copland, who was a huge talent and um, wrote rather thorny modernist music in the 1920s, which was the vogue amongst musicians, but did not have a huge audience in, in the popular sense. And in the 1940s, he made a conscious decision to write in a more simple style when he started working with Agnes de Mille on uh, the great ballets, um, Appalachian Spring, Rodeo, and Billy the Kid. His musical style changed, and suddenly he was reaching more people, but he wasn't compromising his, um, his instincts as a musician. He still wrote complex music. Um, it was still sophisticated, but it, it maybe had more melody. It, it was, it, he used folk melodies, and Gershwin did the same thing. You know, he was well. He sort of went the other way because he started in the popular way and and um, reached out more towards in with Rhapsody in Blue to the concert hall and the Concerto in F and then Porgy and Bess the Opera House. Um, so I don't regret the decision to do musical theater. It made things hard for a while because I always did opera alongside it and um, classical music concerts, but it. I, I was pigeonholed a bit, you know. He's the guy who does pops concerts, or he's the guy who does American repertoire. Um, but it taught me about storytelling and about conducting for the theater. And um, so what I learned working with great directors in the theater, like Trevor Nunn and Nicholas Heitner, Harold Prince, um, was about storytelling and about making a piece work, because musicals have to work commercially. You cannot afford any dead moments in a musical because the audience will get bored and they'll walk out <laughs> and you've got to make money every week. So it taught me a lot. And when I come back and do opera, I, I take the same approach in that my main um, goal is to tell the story 
in the way that the composer wrote it, absolutely. But um, I'm, I'm always interested in that emotional arc of the story. You know, David, we've had over the 35 years plus that we've known each other, lots of late night dinner conversations. But there's a question that I've never been able to ask you. And I think now that we have this opportunity, I'd love for you to reflect because you have a unique perspective. Uh, and it's been brought about by two things of recent date. First of all, uh, this summer at Cincinnati Opera, we did a production of Ariadne of Noxos that was set in the late 1950s. I also am a devotee of a wonderful uh, cable uh, television service called Classic Art Showcase, which is clips drawn from broadcast services all over the world of classical music. It's on every cable station in every cable in, in community available on cable. And Predominantly on these uh, this cable service are clips often from the 1950s and late 1940s, early days of television, um, of classical music performers playing, singing and playing their repertoire on national television, uh, on either dedicated programs like The Voice of Firestone, but they are also on the variety shows. And this production that we had this summer of Ariadne of Noxus took the conscious decision that around this time, high classical music culture, represented by Toscanini, who had stopped conducting by then, but the, the atmosphere of a symphony orchestra having its own national radio broadcast, a symphony orchestra created specifically for the radio, television productions of full-length operas. That's how Leontine Price got some of her first fame. That's how John Carlo Menotti got his first national fame. And popular culture, represented in that production by Marilyn Monroe, they were closer together than at any other point in, let's say, recent American history. And then it seems the divide increased again. We get to the 1960s and the 70s, and all of a sudden, high culture, represented by, let's say, opera and symphonic music, goes off into this sort of space capsule. Popular culture, of course, increases because of the rise in the teenage population, the increase of commercial recording activity. But there was a time in our, in our country's history where these two art forms that you love to practice were not so far apart. What do you think happened? That why for why in that time were they more co-equal, and why are they no longer so co-equal? I think part of that had to do with the rise of rock and roll. Mm. Now I love rock and roll, uh, and most people of our generation do, and kids nowadays even love it. Uh, but rock and roll does not require a symphony orchestra to be performed. So what you need is a guitar, a bass, and a drummer as the most basic form. And so the symphony orchestra never really merged with that. With Broadway, the classic Broadway repertoire, a symphony orchestra can play it. So immediately when the shows, the Rodgers and Hammerstein shows were written, for instance, in the 40s and 50s, they needed to produce arrangements of the songs for symphony orchestras because symphony orchestras wanted to perform that repertoire. With rock and roll, the popular music of the day was not really performable by symphony orchestras. So that takes, I think that is part of the reason for it. And then music got more electronic. So, uh, you know, now with disco and after that, you know, with the 80s, pop music could be made nowadays. It could be made on a computer and it has been going that way for a long time. So you don't need live performers to do it. So that's part of the reason. But, but also, it also yeah. seems like the aesthetic has changed too. That in, in terms of, it would seem that, and I, maybe I'm just extrapolating this in hindsight, but it would seem that when I watch some of these old clips, these operatic performers loved performing great musical theater songs. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a happy owner of a recording that I use as a party trick of the songs of Gershwin and Kern. And there is this popular singer who sings them so idiomatically in such great American and then I ask whoever I'm playing it for, so who, who do you think that is? And they say, oh, well, I don't know. Was it some great pop or jazz singer of the 50s? I said, no, that's one of the greatest American operatic sopranos, Dorothy Kirsten. In other words, there seemed to also be a time when performers were didn't make so much of a distinction between the two genres. There still are some singers who can do both musical theater and opera and even popular music. It's it's harder for women because the technique is different. Sopranos, <clears throat> excuse me, sopranos sing in their head voice, and most popular music is in chest voice. So that's just a technical thing. It's easier for men. Mm. 
But I, I, I want to point out some trends that are more positive now and that are optimistic for classical music, which are, the first one is what you're doing here at Cincinnati Opera in producing new works. Some of the most popular operas in opera companies in the United States today are the new pieces. Minnesota Opera apparently sell out their world premieres faster than their traviatas, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a wonderful renaissance. And the fact of the piece that I just saw last night, Blind Injustice, which is so powerful and emotionally shattering, is relevant to what's going on today, right up to date and, and passionately done. And I think as a future for opera, that's a really optimistic thing that's happening. The other thing that's good news for the symphony orchestra is that film music went back towards symphony orchestra, starting in the 70s with John Williams. Um, before that, film music was getting sort of smaller ensembles and even electronic. And then John Williams uh, took his cue from the great composers of the 30s and 40s, Corn Gold and so forth, and brought back the symphony orchestra. And you had Jaws and Star Wars and, um, all, and Harry Potter now and all those great symphonic scores. So the average person now all over the world, when they go to the cinema every week, is hearing a symphony orchestra. They may not know that, but that's what they're hearing. And so symphony orchestras are wise to this, and they're doing film scores. I just uh, did a film score program in, in Bordeaux, France, which was very popular. And um, you can play this music in concert, with or without the pictures. You don't necessarily need the film. I mean, I, one of my favorite pieces to conduct is called E.T., Adventures on Earth. And it's a 10-minute suite that John Williams wrote where you don't need the movie. You can tell exactly when those bicycles take off and ride into the sky in front of the moon just from listening to the music. You know, it's the modern equivalent of something like Strauss's Till Eulenspiegel. It's storytelling in the most abstract form without words, but as you say, location and emotion are fused in your imagination instantly. The power of the communicative power of music. Something else too though that I that I've always loved uh, in talking to you David is that You've never lost that wonderful, and I say this with respect and affection, that wonderful musical nerdiness of wanting to get it right to the extent that you and your husband, Sean, have spent years sometimes working on creating just the right score for a piece. Would you take us a little bit into the workshop and the journey and tell the story of Kiss Me, Kate? and how that came into your lives, and what you did. This is, of course, the great comeback musical for Cole Porter in the 1940s, the late 1940s. By this point, people, at least the common, the common received wisdom now, 50 years later, was that Porter was not necessarily washed up, but he was sort of yesterday's news. He hadn't written a hit in a long time. And along comes Kiss Me, Kate, and totally revives his career and makes him a household name again. But that's only the beginning of the story. How did you come across the musical and what you were in, entrusted to do and what was the result? Well, I was asked to conduct it at Glimmerglass Opera Festival in 2008. And I had learned from bitter experience that whenever you conduct Broadway repertoire, you have to be very careful about the scores and parts because the publishers send out scores and parts which usually are, are corrupt. They, they have mistakes in them, they might be in the wrong key, they're poorly copied. And the reason for this is that um, that material was considered disposable by producers. If you're producing a musical on Broadway, you just want to get it, get to the opening night, and you want a hit which will then make you money. Most musicals flop. <laughs> I know I've conducted a few new ones which have flopped. Um, and I've been there for two yes, of them. Yes, <laughs> you have, you have. Uh, so if you're having orchestrations done and the, the score are made, you just want to, you know, you, you, you have the, the, the orchestrators write the score. So they write out the parts for all of the instruments. Broadway composers do not orchestrate their own music in general. Oh. So um, they have to hire specialists called orchestrators. And there are some great ones and were some great ones in, in history who were highly trained musicians, knew every instrument and knew how to make the tunes sound great. They were dressing up these great tunes in finery. And, uh, but those scores quite often got lost because as soon as the parts were copied, who needs the scores anymore? They are the parts. We might make changes while the pieces in rehearsal and in preview. So what, what, what form would that take? The musicians would scratch out stuff in their parts and write in and pencil what it should be. You know, there were changes being made every day. So by the time you get to the opening, already it's, it's a bit of a mess. 
the people who are performing it every night know what they're doing. But if you were to come along, landing from another planet, and try to recreate this piece, you couldn't do it. So, Kiss Me Kate, I was determined to find the original orchestrator's scores in 2008. I called Yale, which is where Coldwater went to school. They didn't have them. I called Library of Congress and New York Public Library. No one knew where these scores were. Finally, I was directed to a lawyer's office in Midtown Manhattan, which are, is the Cole Porter Trusts, the lawyers who administer the money that comes in from Cole Porter's songs, which was substantial and still is. And they said, oh, we have some music on the shelves. You can come look at it. We don't really know what it is, but um, come have a look. So I went down there and I went through a lot of music. I thought, well, I've seen that before. That's nothing special. This, And then some yellowing sheets of music paper caught my eye, and I pulled them down, and I realized these were the original ink manuscripts by the orchestrators, Robert Russell Bennett and Don Walker, of Kiss Me Kate. Wow. Now, I... Um, I it's like opening Tut's tomb, Oh, right? yeah, it was wonderful. <laughs> it's really archaeology. They offered to photocopy them for me, and I conducted the Glimmerglass production from those scores. They didn't match a lot of what was in the parts that Tams Woodmark, the publisher, had sent me because those parts had been recopied and recopied and some of them were touring parts. They had revised the orchestration, made it smaller and changed keys and the dance routines were different. So I had a bit of work to do then. And after that production, the, the lawyers came up and saw the production. They loved it. And I went down to their office and I brought them a cloth-bound edition of Mendelssohn's Midsummer Night's Dream in what's called a critical edition. Now, um, as classical musicians, we always want to have the most accurate edition. And for the great composers, all that scholarly work has been done. And musicologists have gone back and researched what did the composer actually write? What did they actually play at the time? What was the style of playing at the time? And we have these beautiful scores which give us, like the Arden Shakespeare, the definitive version to perform. And I had this beautiful score. It had Mendelssohn's signature in gold letters on the front. And I shoved it across the desk to the lawyer and I said, Kiss Me Kate could look like this. And he said, tell me more. And I said, well, it's going to cost you. <laughs> and he said, how much? And I told him. And he came back to me and he said, well, if you could reduce that by $10,000, we could do it. So um, Sean and I started researching the original sources of Kiss Me Kate. And we were amazed at what we found. Because in addition to the scores being important, the actual orchestra parts that the players played from in 1948 were even more important because they had the corrections in them and the changes that Porter had made and that the director and the orchestrators had made. And we found them. And they had been used for three years in the pit on Broadway. So they were scrawled over with all sorts of things by the players. They were doodles. And they figured out how much they were making per hour every week. You know, you could see that. How much per note sometimes. Because they got so <laughs> bored. They were doing eight performances a week. It was boring, you know. And um, there were caricatures of the conductor. And, <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, they changed the titles of, of the, like the, the, the song, I Hate Men, which is in... in, in um, um, Kiss Me Kate, was changed to I Hate Pem. <laughs> Pem was the conductor of Kiss Me Kate, Pembroke Davenport, <laughs> who amazingly is the grandfather of Scott Davenport Richards, who composed um, oh, uh, my Blind and Justice. Oh, you. my goodness. We had a talk about that in your pool the other day. <laughs> it was very interesting. <laughs> so the research continues. <laughs> the research continues. Yes, it does. And it took Sean and I four years. Originally, it was supposed to be a, a, a project which would fill the time between engagements. So if I had a few weeks off, I would work on it. But then suddenly there was no time between engagements. <laughs> and so I thought, well, if I were ever going to finish this, we have to set aside some time. So Sean and I turned down all other work for eight months. And we worked six days a week, 12, 14-hour days looking at all these orchestra parts and writing footnotes. Because in a critical edition, you have to justify every decision you make. If the editor says that's a B natural, not a B flat, you have to say why. So there's a footnote. We believe it's a B flat because in the first violin part that was used in 1948, it was changed to a B flat in pencil by the musician. And of course, it goes much deeper than that. We also examined early versions of the dance routines. There were three separate dance routines for Too Darn Hot, for instance. The reason being that... Um, well, first of all, they, uh, well, they had an original one for the opening night in 1948. Then they sent out a national tour. They had a dancer whose skills were different. Maybe he was more of a tapper rather than a ballet type. So the orchestrators wrote a new dance routine. They sent that out on the road. Then the cast changed on Broadway. 
And again, they had a different sort of dancer. And by this time, styles had moved on a bit. So swing music was even more edgy. And so Robert Russell Bennett orchestrated a different dance routine, which was even longer and even more wonderful. So we put all three dance routines in the edition, one in the main body and then two in an appendix. So if you want to perform the touring dance routine, you can do that. If you want to perform the original, you can do that. But our recommendation is the last one, which was the most elaborate and fancy and exciting one. So this is a little bit like, as you mentioned with this Mendelssohn score, for lovers of opera who may be listening to this, this is a little bit like the mammoth project that was undertaken over a period of, set, a period of decades with the operas of Rossini and the operas of Verdi. Uh, supervised by the University of Chicago in collaboration with Casa Ricordi in Milano, and overall supervised by one of the great musicologists of my acquaintance, Philip, the late Philip Gossett. You apply the same sort of intellectual rigor to Kiss Me Kate as all of those scholars apply to Tancredi or Unbalo en Maschera. And so you come up with, at the end, a, a roadmap, not necessarily a roadmap, but this is what was originally performed. These are all the variations. Now you choose. Exactly. Right? Well, I believe this music, that our Broadway music, which is the United States is one of the United States' main contributions to world culture, I believe. I think it should be taken as seriously as Mozart and Beethoven and Mendelssohn. Well, it was our popular entertainment equivalent to the height of opera in the 19th century. Yeah, exactly. It's the same sort of thing. Music, as, as a famous Cincinnatian once said, music for the masses, not the classes, Powell Crosley Jr., and, and yet it is music of a very, very high level of accomplishment, craft, and art. Well, I'm, I'm interested in what the original creators wanted to produce. And with a musical, it's not just the composer. Musicals are created by, well, committee is a bad word, a team, let's mm -hmm. say. So it includes the, the composer, the person who helped him or her work out the piano accompaniments, the harmony, the bass lines, and so forth, because some songwriters didn't do that. Irving Berlin famously exactly. could play piano only in one key. Exactly. And he had a piano specially yeah. made that could transpose by what a half step or a whole step by shifting a lever because that's how he wrote his music. Yeah, so he needed someone to to write the piano arrangement which would become the sheet music. That person is also a creator of a musical. The dance arranger because in the first few weeks of rehearsal of a musical um, the choreographer goes into a room and creates the dance routines with, with the dancers, but also with the pianist who can improvise on the tunes. So for instance, too darn hot. It's a very simple tune. Too darn hot. It's too darn hot. And the dance arranger would make it into something really fancy. Put that in the trumpets, make it a variation, make it, you know, do 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 It's the same tune, but it's decorated. And so that person is part of the creative team. The director is part of the creative team. Even Alfred Drake, who was the original star of Kiss Me Kate, was responsible for the writing in that he heard Patricia Morrison sing So in Love in Act One. And it was obviously a beautiful ballad, extraordinary, exquisite love song. And he said to Mr. Porter, he said, you know, I believe that my character, for dramatic reasons, needs a reprise of that song in Act Two. So Alfred Drake was becoming Fred. <laughs> oh, yes. And sure enough, he got that reprise. And that reprise was done by a different orchestrator. So Robert Russell Bennett did the Act One, So in Love, sung by the female character, and Don Walker did the Act Two, and they're very different and very interesting. So when it comes to uh, this finished performing edition of Kiss Me, Kate, um, which is now looking as beautiful as your Mendelssohn uh, score, uh, what is the what are the opportunities and the obligations of someone who is going to produce this up this musical now? Do they have do they have uh, can they do this ex critical edition and uh, and and as it were, this is like a, a piece of a piece of tarnished brass that is just sort of sitting in your cam that doesn't look like anything but you you put you know you you go to the trouble of scraping off all the tarnish and it looks brand new again. Exactly. Well, that's the joy of it. You can hear it as the original creators intended with the, the orchestration you know, in its original form. I've conducted my own critical edition now three times. The first time was at Yale, and oh, uh, we did it very straight it ahead in a, source, concert, right? in a concert version. Yeah. The second time was at Opera North in England, and I worked with a very fine director, Joe Davis, there. And she wanted to do things a little differently. She wanted to reorder some of the songs 
she needed music to change the scenery at certain places. And so I said, that's fine. We have in the appendix, we have these other versions and we can use them to change the scene. I'll put this here. I'll transpose this. We'll do this for a solo instead of a chorus. So I was doing it in an authentic manner, but also uh, in a way that served the production that Joe had in her vision. So it was modern, but it was also authentic. Then I did it with Lee Blakely at the Chatelet, and he had a slightly different, it was broader, and the comedy was broader, and so he wanted different things. And we used the music in a different way, but it was all sort of the original text used in, in ways that served each production. I think what is fascinating for our listeners is that I have to remind you that this is exactly what George Frederick Handel did with his operas and what he did with Messiah. There is no critical edition, how did Handel hear Messiah version of the piece? Because for all the decade plus that he personally conducted it in the last 10 or 15 years of his life, nearly every single time he came to conduct it, there was a new singer or there was a singer who could not manage one of these arias, so he either rewrote it or wrote a new piece or transposed it. And you get to the operas of Rossini and you read the letters of Verdi and a theater is producing it and the prima donna has insisted on a new piece or she won't be she won't accept the contract. So a piece that's already written, Verdi or Rossini goes back and writes another piece of music. I, in other words, I guess what I'm getting at here is that one of the things I think we have forgotten about both of our art forms, the art form of opera and the art form of the musical theater, is that they are not cast in stone um, sort of temples. I mean, maybe Wagner, because he, you know, he wrote it from beginning to end and supervised every last tittle and jot. But it's a living art. And it must be exciting for you to even come back to something like Porgy and Bess, which you've done a couple of times now, to take it on again in a slightly different roadmap than you did when you did it for us in 2012. So how is it coming back to it now after just a few years in Cincinnati? What's, what's different from you? What are some of the things you've discovered with Porgy and Bess this time around? It feels very different this time around. Um, the, the cuts that we're doing are quite different. Um, back in 2012... Uh, I worked with uh, with Lem, the Lemuel director. Wade. Yeah, Lemuel Wade. To um, well, we 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 identified the cuts that Gershwin himself had made in 1935 because at the first preview in Boston, the piece lasted over four hours. Oh my gosh! And so he and uh, his brother Ira and Dubose Hayward and, uh, and Ruben Mamoulian, the director, walked around Boston Common in the cold and decided, what are we going to cut? And so George, uh, you know, um, approved certain cuts. And we, I took that as my starting point back in 2012. And Lem and I crafted a version with you, which incorporated some of those, but not all of them, because Lem had things that he wanted. He knew the piece very well, and he had experience with it. And this time we're doing Francesca Zambella's production. And her take on the piece is very interesting and very um, modern in the sense that she emphasizes the community and the matriarchy in the community over um, over all else, really. Well, I mean, the love story, of course, is still there, and the basic story is the same. But there are differences. So the cuts that she chose to make and the music that she chose to include with John Domain when they planned it is a little bit different. I made a few changes in that when I came on board. So it is constantly evolving. And, of course, the singers that you have make a big difference, too, because uh, Morris Robinson is a bass, and he's singing Porgy. So the way that he interprets it is different. The tempo might be different with Morris than it was with Jonathan Lamalu, for instance. Um, you know, you, I, I am very interested in what every singer has to bring to their own role, and I want to support them in their interpretation. I'm not the kind of conductor who says, well, I think it has to be this tempo, and you have to do this ornament, and, you know, you have to breathe here and so forth. I will guide them, but I always take as my starting point what do they have to offer that is unique to them in this role. Mm -hmm. So this time around, it feels, Porgy and Bess feels, feels like a whirlwind in a way. Uh, the first act really goes at a pace. And part of that is the tempos that these singers particularly like. Part of that is Francesca's um, very serious interpretation of the piece. And, you know, there's also certain amount of, of, of violence in the piece. And, um, you know, it's a very serious drama. It has these wonderful tunes that we all know and love, and they are all there, and they are all beautifully sung. But the overall feeling of the piece is that society has changed a little bit since 2012 as well. So we see the events of Porgy and Bess differently now. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. You have reached a wonderful point in your career where that pigeonhole is gone. Uh, you conduct as much core opera around the country, Kansas City, Hawaii Opera Theater, soon to be Atlanta, here with us regularly, and you keep your musical theater credentials. But you also have come to a point in your work where famous singers are seeking you out for this broad range that you the pigeonhole that you refuse to accept. And I'm thinking particularly of the singers Deanna Damrau, the great operatic soprano, as well as the great operatic baritone, Simon Keenly side. You've collaborated with them on projects. You're giving what, me a chance to plug my CDs now. I Thank am, you. But I'm also giving you a chance to explain what it's like to work with performers who have grown up in the world of opera, but who are also taking a chance and stepping outside their comfort zone, because on your Simon Kinley side record, Simon Kinley side sings Fiddler on the Roof. So, so it's going in the other direction. It seems like you, who have the broader experience, are helping these singers, whom we know primarily as opera singers, push their own boundaries. What's that like? And I feel so fortunate to have worked with those two singers. They're such fine artists and so versatile. And they both were passionately wanted to do these projects, which are CDs of, of but crossover. But si Simon Kingley signed singing Tevye? What's that about? <laughs> he wanted to do it. And Personal it came reason? about It came about because he had done a favor to Shandos Records. Shandos records most of their opera, or maybe all of their opera, in English. That's their mission. And he had learned some big Verdi role in English to do, uh, maybe with Macbeth, I don't know what it was. And he had done that as a favor to the man who ran Shadows Peter Moore, well, the Peter Moore's Peter Foundation. Moore, right? Peter Moore's yeah. Foundation, yes, yeah. exactly. And so in gratitude, they said, all right, Simon, make any CD you want. What do you want to do? And he said, I want to do great songs from films and the songs that Bing Crosby sang and Frank Sinatra. And um, so we made an album of that, plus some musical theater. And he did it extremely well. And it meshed well with my approach because um, I was able to uh, restore, with the help of a musicologist friend, Derek Gretton Harrison, um, some movie, movie songs, including a great song that Fred Astaire sang called Something's Gotta Give. Oh, I know and, the song. Oh, it's a great, just a great piece. It's something's gotta give, something's gotta give, something's gotta give. It's a crooner song. And Simon wanted to do this. And it happens to have a huge dance routine attached to it. And Derek found the scores in Hollywood in some dusty archive and restored them. And so we did with the BBC Concert Orchestra this orchestration. And he ended up titling the album Something's Gotta Give. Hmm. Now, Deanna uh, wanted to make a, a, her album has operetta, musicals, film songs, and two vocalises. She knew exactly what she wanted to do. So she sings everything from Meine Lippen sie küssen so heiß by Lehar. Oh, from Judita, right. From Judita. To Wonderful Guy from uh, South Pacific. And she belts it. She Meaning uses you, that. Using, using the chest voice of a, of a Broadway singer to, exactly. to sing Exactly. She in carries that her chest range. voice up to about C above middle C. And I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love. She does all that. And does it very well in English. David, you have had already such a, a varied career. And as I said, you now split your time happily and equally between the, the world of opera, the world of musical theater, concert music, uh, special projects. What's next? What's on the, what's on the <laughs> David Charles Abell wish list? Well, I, I do love my life so much and my professional life. It's, it's very challenging and very interesting and very varied, as you're saying, and very rewarding. Um, the one area that I want to develop a little further is straight-ahead classical concert repertoire, which I grew up on. I played viola. I learned the Beethoven symphonies in high school when we played them in our orchestra. So, and I studied them, of course, at Yale and then at Juilliard later on. And um, I haven't had a chance to do much of that in recent years, so I want to redevelop that a bit. Well, also because opera takes a large amount of time. Oh, any it does. Yes. Well, any <laughs> operatic engagement or musical theater engagement is four to six weeks. Well, I just I just spent ten weeks in Vienna, and which is great. You know, I'm not complaining. Ten weeks in Zurich doing Sweeney Todd with Bryn Terville. and uh, you know, I come here Name and it's a dropper. month. <laughs> oh yes, those names are on the floor. Sorry, I'll pick That's them up later. That's all um, right. And, so, and when you do an orchestral concert, you're there for a week, yeah. and it's all about the orchestra and all about the rehearsals. So it's nice to, to, to go into the foreground and have it be just that atmosphere. Well, and one of the things that I always remind young conductors when they come for advice, I, I always tell them, 
get experience in the pit because every great conductor, every legendary great conductor of the past has begun in the opera house because if you can accompany singers, you can do just about anything. And it is a, it is a wonderful, wonderful craft. Uh, you name them, Toscanini and Furtwängler and Carian and Scholte and Bernstein, all of them, all of them value their operatic experience in enriching their symphonic life. Yeah. Well, as we come to the end of every one of these conversations, David, we ask all of our guests the exact same questions. You are allowed to take the fifth on any one of them, all right? It provides a level playing field, all right? What do you eat for breakfast? <laughs> it depends whether I'm going to the gym that morning or not. If I'm going to the gym, oh, this is not recommended recipe. <laughs> Egg whites in the microwave with a little bit of granola in them. And the occasional blueberry? Oh, yes, blueberries, yes. <laughs> How do you deal with stress? Uh, <laughs> I, earlier this year, I had a moment where I was feeling very stressed because I was conducting in, in, in Dublin, and I had my niece with me, my 18-year-old niece, and I was taking care of her. One thing I did was I stopped reading the news for a few weeks. So that was one way. But I also, I do meditate. I work out at the gym and I find those things very relaxing. Do you have a, a particularly important mentor whose advice you keep in your head and whose advice you pass on? Well, I have many of them and I've mentioned some of them on mm -hmm. this podcast. Uh, John Mountcherry, Leonard Bernstein and Giancarlo Manotti and they all told me things which were extremely valuable. But I have to say... That, that you are also one of my inspirations, Evans. And I've known you for 35 years. And the thing, well, there are many things that I love about you, but one of them is that you experience life as a, a sort of playground. You just manage to find wonderful things in anything that you're doing. And I, you've stayed at our house in London, and quite often you'll go out for the day and you'll come back and you'll say, I was walking down the street today and the trees were so beautiful, I just can't believe it. And then I saw this and I saw that. And I think, this is a person who knows how to experience life as uninterrupted joy. You only have one chance, so you might as well. Thank you. What are you reading? I just, fin I just finished a novel about, um, about bureaucrats in the European Union, interestingly. Oh, boy. So you get <laughs> because, to sleep very easily at oh, night, don't you? Oh, gosh. Well, no, no. It was, quite, it was quite interesting, actually, because we don't know much about those people. No. And this, this, this uh, novel humanized the them. This EU, this sort of Brussels yes. bureaucracy, right? Well, this, this, this novel humanized them. And, of course, they are people who believe in peace because the EU was formed to keep peace in Europe after the Second World War, and it has worked since then. And now with the country that I live in and the country of which I'm a citizen as well, the UK planning to leave the EU, I'm upset about it, and I wanted to learn more about it. Is there a TV series or podcast you particularly enjoy? My niece's podcast, The Bright Sessions, is a wonderful um, quasi-sci-fi uh, um, podcast. The which, Bright um, Sessions. The Bright Sessions. Okay. It's about a therapist called Dr. Bright, whose patients are people with special powers. So... One might be someone who's telekinetic, who can move objects. Another might be someone who can time travel. Another is someone who feels other people's emotions. Another is someone who can manipulate other people's minds. And um, the plots that she has constructed, all out of her own head, are absolutely extraordinary. It's been a huge success. And she is now living in Hollywood and doing, well, she's been commissioned to write two books based on this by Macmillan. And she's also working on a television pilot based on her podcast. Wow. There are, no, there are no slouches in your family. <laughs> uh, is there a phone app you find particularly useful? <laughs> um, well, dark skies can tell you when there's a storm coming. So, you know, when we're on Cape Cod in, in our house there, we, we, we need to know that. <laughs> uh, you've been to Cincinnati several times and you've watched over the Rhine and the, and the city revitalize and change. But have you settled on one or two restaurants in particular that when you do go out, you like a lot? Trio. Wonderful Italian. Uh, the best career advice you've ever received? Or among the best career advice? Oh my don't gosh. ever do. I mean, you had negative <laughs> career advice from John Carlo Don't ever conduct Broadway. Don't ever conduct Broadway. Yes. Uh, actually, if I hadn't done that, my career might have been easier. <laughs> <laughs> but enough. I don't regret doing it, as I said earlier. And I, 
it, it taught me about storytelling, and I do think of all music as storytelling, even a Mahler symphony, Beethoven symphony. It's it's storytelling, and if you can bring that alive for an audience, I think you can engage them. Um, do you have a favorite musician outside of classical music? Well, Paul McCartney is a real um, uh, idol of mine. He, you know, as really the Beatle who held the group together more than any of the others. You know, he dealt with John Lennon's um, mercurial personality and held the other two in as well. And um, I was conducting Carousel at English National Opera a couple of years ago. And I went to the stage door just before the show to try to get a signal on my cell phone. And Paul McCartney was at the stage door. And I, I saw him and I ran into him and there we were face to face. And all I could say was, Oh, it's you. <laughs> it turned out he was friends with Alfie Bow, who was singing um, the starring role in Carousel, and he was coming to see Alfie. <laughs> and I was so thrilled that he was there. And he came up on stage afterwards and said hi to the cast, and I met his, his son. It was just incredible. Wow. So you can still be starstruck. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Last but not least, um, let's have your elevator speech uh, about... Uh, convincing someone to give opera a try for the first time. Oh, my gosh. Well, if you like any sort of musical storytelling, if you like musicals, come to the opera. It's so great these days because you have surtitles in English above the stage. So if, even if the piece is in Italian or German or French, you can read what they're saying. You can understand the story. And, you know, opera singers these days can act. They, they, they look like the roles and they act like the roles. And the story, if you get involved in the story... It's the best way of storytelling because it, 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 it engages all of your senses. You're hearing it. Well, maybe not smell-o-vision. We haven't done that, but not in the opera <laughs> that could be in the future. <laughs> <laughs> David, thank you very, very much for being our guest. Thank you, Evans. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information about Cincinnati Opera, please go to cincinnatiopera.org. And please do subscribe to this podcast. For Cincinnati Opera... I'm Evans Mirages. <laughs>